Before I get started on today's first episode of Know Your History, I would like to talk about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee, in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple of blocks away from Coors Field, right smack dab in the middle of a dairy block, and just a couple paces down the alley, down the actual dairy block, from the milk market. Uh, Blanchard Family Wines has been around since late 2018, one of my favorite places to go in Denver. Uh, whether you like wine or not, it really is a great vibe. It's a great atmosphere with knowledgeable staff who, even if you're not into wines, uh, will navigate you through what you can have, even if you're not into that, and maybe suggest a wine cocktail, you know, something like that. Uh, they have uh, their own family vineyards in uh, Sonoma County in Northern California, and uh, they take great pride in uh, having just taking care with handcrafted wine that they bring over from Sonoma County. Uh, normally, you'd have to, in Denver, you'd have to drive 250 miles to Grand Junction to get this kind of feel, or even fly to California. Uh, honestly, it is uh, one of my favorite places to go in Denver, whether you like reds, whites, pinots, cabernets. Uh, they've got it all, blends. It's, it really is the place to be. Um, they have a rotating list of seasonal wines. Um, it's just one of my favorite places in Denver. They are on Facebook and Instagram under Blanchard Family Wines. Once again, they are located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right smack dab in the middle of the dairy block. When you go in, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. What is up, everybody? Today is the first episode of Know Your History. Uh, it's going to be an ongoing series for as long as I can manage to come up with history, um, it's a long-going series talking about uh, history of the NBA. Maybe even not even the NBA. I'll maybe go to other sports, but history, historical uh, aspects of uh, the sport that you may not have thought about or explored. And the inaugural episode is going to be simply how Shaquille O'Neal created the modern NBA. I'm going full old man here, and I'm going full on brand. I'm outside. You can hear the cars going by. You may even be able to hear geese going overhead, freaking Canadian geese. And uh, you'll be able to, this is it's full old man. This is on brand. Uh, so I, I'm going to start off by saying this. Shaquille O'Neal created, whether he wanted to or not, or even thought about it, and I doubt he did, the modern NBA. And it really was an extension of the NBA's inability to properly officiate him that really created the rules that made the conditions for today's NBA. Um, people tend to overcredit analytics. Uh, analytics just, all they did was uh, kind of uh, standardize um, the league. Seriously. Um, what they did was create what was already there with the rules and make it standard. Um, people tend to think that an analytics, you know, makes uh, things homogeneous. Everyone ends up has the same numbers for the same thing, so end up doing the same thing, right? Uh, that's what it did. But in the reality, the conditions were there in this already existing, um, indicating that. The league wanted the, the the league wanted to the the actual style of play to go a certain way, 
And uh, we're basically for some context, and this is going to be longer, a longer, uh, more cast, or excuse me, uh, special episode than you're used to having because it's, I'm going to have to go deep into basically what created this league and what created the conditions that allowed people like, say, James Harden specifically to thrive. People overcredit, once again, Steph Curry. But really, it's, this is a James Harden league right now because James Harden is the one who benefits more. I mean, uh, yeah, Steph Curry with no, no hand check benefits from that. But he was always going to be a good shooter. The James Hardens of the world and the way they play uh, really benefit highly, highly from the way the NBA's rules have changed because of Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, the golden era of the NBA's center was the 90s. Um, let's be quite honest here. There were great centers beforehand, but really you never had so many good centers at once playing at the same time in the NBA. Uh, be it uh, David Robinson, be it Patrick Ewing, uh, be it Akeem Olajuwon, uh, later in the decade, it was Tim Duncan, be it Shaquille O'Neal. Um, it, it was, I mean, even like um, for a team like the Indiana Pacers, uh, a player like Rick Smits could come in and be dominant at certain points of time. And Rick Smits was like 7'2", 7'3", enormous guy from, uh, I forget where he was from, he was German? Um, anyway, he was, uh, it, it just, it was... Basically, the NBA, while Jordan was dominating, uh, was really a center league. And no person better was uh, a a better example of this than Shaquille O'Neal. And Shaquille O'Neal really was dominant in uh, Orlando. In fact, one can argue Orlando Shaq was probably the most idealized version of Shaquille O'Neal. He was still in shape, and he um, uh, showed off a lot of skills. He was, Shaquille, Shaquille O'Neal was a great passer when he chose to be, uh, extremely good passer. Um, and it was that's why he fit so well later into the triangle. Fast forward, he goes to the Lakers in 1996, uh, spends a couple of years butting his head up against the ceiling uh, because they had Del Harris as their coach. Uh, 1990 season, 1999 season, after the lockout, Phil Jackson comes in, installs the triangle, and Shaquille O'Neal was unlocked. And for almost three seasons, but I would say two, um, 1999, 2000, and 2000, 2001, those two seasons, Shaquille O'Neal became the most unstoppable force the NBA has ever seen. Um, and if you go look at his playoff numbers, they are insane. Both of those years. Shaquille O'Neal was absolutely mind-blowing insane. Um, and it, I don't think you will ever see anything like that ever again from uh, a big man. It was a, he was a force of nature. He dominated the league like no one had ever seen. And inevitably, when that happens, you get whining from NBA owners. And the whining uh, basically... <laughs> Uh, kind of centered around the fact that the officials couldn't officiate him properly. 
Um, there was a lot of debate at the time, and many of you I know who are listening to this weren't around, or at least if you were around, were too young to remember. A lot of the issues with Shaq was that they couldn't determine what was an offensive foul or was a foul or blocking foul. So it was a charge or block. Uh, they couldn't determine. And the block charge thing uh, became more into focus during the middle 2000s, um, which is kind of shaped the way the league did this, and that was largely because of Shaq, but that was minor in comparison to the fact that they just didn't know how to officiate Shaquille O'Neal. Um, one could make the legit argument that he was fouled far more often than he committed fouls, and O'Neal uh, was just that physically dominant. Uh, it's like I, We've never seen a center like Shaquille O'Neal, and you could argue, like I said, that he was, he was fouled far more than he was committed fouls. But the league, obviously, in their infinite wisdom, recognized that he couldn't be officiated properly and decided to change the game. Now, inevitably, when you have a bunch of centers, great centers in the league now, but by the time, by the time O'Neal was dominating, the era of the center was starting to wane. You only had uh, basically Tim Duncan, who was basically a power forward, um, but you had Duncan and you had uh, David Robinson at the very end of his career. But by then, Ewing had fallen out. Uh, Elijah Wan was a shadow of his former self. Uh, it just wasn't the same. And therefore, you go fast forward to 2000, and O'Neill just dominates like you've never seen before in the league. So... NBA owners, in their infinite wisdom, decide to change. Now, I think these probably were for the better, but I don't think they understood at the time the consequences of changing this one rule, and that was changing illegal defense. Um, For those of you who are too young to remember, there used to be a penalty in the NBA called illegal defense, which essentially, it was complicated, but essentially it meant you you couldn't play zone. If they found you in a zone, uh, you'd get a whistle. The first one was a warning, and then everything after that was a technical. Um, so every time you were in there, boom, they would whistle it. And they were very good. The NBA officials were very good at whistling illegal defense because it was very easy to identify when someone is in a zone. Uh, they changed that, and then they chose to emphasize three seconds both offensively and defensively. More importantly, offensively. Um, The feeling was that Shaquille O'Neal spent too much time down low, and uh, if they had less opportunity to constantly focus on a center, uh, a dump down to the center, that the, uh, the league would have more time to adjust to officiating, and then a block charge would be easier to uh, call. It didn't turn out to be true until later, but we'll get into that in a bit. Um, subsequently, the league was kind of weird from about, 19, from about 2001 to 2005. It was a strange league while they tried to figure out where to go. In 2004, uh, Mike D'Antoni took over the Phoenix Suns uh, and implemented a system uh, that famously became later seven seconds or less. Um, and it was just basically, you know, you, it, is, it, it is what it says on the 10, as the British would say. Um, very simple. It was point guard dominated. And uh, they were a high-scoring, fun team that the NBA 
thought, hmm, we would like to emulate this. Uh, and specifically, Jerry Colangelo would have really liked to uh, emulate that, considering he was the head of the Rules Committee in the mid-2000s. Um, then, uh, 2005, the worst and lowest-rated seven-game finals in history occurred. I believe the, Cleveland, the two years later, the Cleveland-San uh, Antonio uh, series was lower-rated, but I think Detroit and uh, San Antonio in 2005 was probably the bottom of the barrel for a seven-game series. And it really was probably um, among the other things that year, including what has later been known as Malice at the Palace, uh, and the fight there really got the NBA accelerating on just eliminating physical play in the league. Uh, it, it became to the point where they decided that physical play, if it was going to start brawls that leave that spill into the audience, and if it is people don't, it, 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 you have to understand that by the by the time two thousand five rolled around, post play wasn't what it was. Uh, post play as we know it ended in two thousand one, uh, and it was in the in the, as it was in the nineties. It was gone. Uh, what you had in uh, from that four-year stretch was slow play basketball that they couldn't the NBA couldn't figure out where it wanted to go. Basically, is what you had a four-year period where they didn't want to know. Another lockout, a brief lockout, happens in two thousand five, and the NBA decide comes out of that with a dress code and. Very interestingly, and the final nail in the coffin of uh, post-play, or so we thought, was eliminating the hand-check rule. Now, one of the reasons, uh, in 1994, the NBA already had a hand-check, implemented anti-hand-check rule in 1994, but it was rarely enforced. Right, because it was hard. It was uh, it, at the time you had legal defense, and you needed to. I mean, it was one-on-one defense. It was just never enforced. And then the NBA decides we're going to crack down on this, and we were going to make hand checking dead. It'll never come back. And 2005 is when they decided that, and part of the rationale was that it was too physical, and guards like. Steve Nash couldn't penetrate the lane as they want to. And that was at the behest of one Jerry Colangelo, who was the owner of the Phoenix Suns. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal was still in the league at this point, but post-play, was, it, was, it was weird. Um, and uh, if you go back and watch those games from... Uh, 2000, basically 2002 to 2005, it was it was an odd thing where they were still trying to do the post, uh, but it, it a lot of three seconds were being called and you didn't really know how to approach it because you had been used to a style of play for well most of the NBA's history at that point. So, the hand check elimination really comes into full bore in 2005. And 2005 was kind of a watershed moment in the league. 
The next year you had uh, what I believe was the emergence of what I called the wing-dominated league. LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony were already in the league by 2006. Dwayne Wade, who was older than those two, had gone to four years at Marquette, uh, was with Shaquille O'Neal, who was at that point a shadow of his former self, uh, but assisted Dwayne Wade in a Dwayne Wade-dominated series win over uh, Dallas Mavericks. Postplay evolved into the Dirk Nowitzki form of postplay, which was uh, post-up, fadeaway shot. And that's because uh, you couldn't be in the lane, blah, blah, blah. And his shot was so dominant that it, uh, uh, it, it was a signature shot. This is what you wanted to leave, a signature shot. Um, but you couldn't get down low. And those emphasis, that emphasis on, on, on lack of hand check and guard penetration because the NBA wanted to emulate the seven seconds or less uh, Suns really just snowballed. And the league, each year from 2005, looked different. And by 2000, I think it was 2011, uh, which is the next lockout, um, Daryl Morey in uh, Houston, basically, and the rationale from what I've heard from many people who were around at the time was that people have been pushed out to the perimeter anyway, we have this thing called the three-point line, which has been around since 1980. Uh, three points are better than two. And it was almost entirely because the league, the, the, the scope of the half-court game expanded to around the three-point line. So if you're pushed out to there anyway, you might as well hit a, shoot a three, particularly a corner three. Um, the three-point line and analytics um, didn't shape the way the league was. That was rules changes. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, what analytics did was standardize it and make people understand that you're out there anyway. You can't camp down in the lane. You are pushed out to the three-point line. The three-point line is the new key. The, the three-point line is the new key in the NBA. So uh, it is, that is why you have things. People, uh, let me put it to you this way. In the, when the NBA first started, the key, the, 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 the lane was a lot thinner than it became. And then it was expanded, and it kept expanding. And uh, that is part of the NBA's... Uh, choice to expand rules to open up the game, to widen things out. And once they put in uh, the ability to play zone and they eliminated hand check, all, almost all of the game resided outside. That's why you have a lane that is like a, a three truck, semi trucks wide together. <laughs> That's why you have that is because of the killing off of illegal defense. And what has aided freedom of movement is the lack of hand check. Now, how does this affect James Harden? I see there's two players who have come to, a, you know, 
the be the standard bearer for the modern era of uh, basketball. One of them is Steph Curry, one of them is James Harden. Uh, Steph Curry, as I've pointed out before on other podcasts, Steph Curry is someone who would be good in, in any era, but not great. Hand-checking would eliminate a lot of his ability to move around. He could still get a shot. I mean, his dad, Del Curry, was a great three-point shooter, too. Um, you know, think of Reggie Miller. Okay, Reggie Miller was able to excel in, an, in a league that beat you up. So he, he would have a similar career arc, I think, to Reg, Reggie Miller. I uh, can't compare him to Mahmoud because Mahmoud uh, liked his long twos. Uh, he just, that's where he preferred to shoot. Um, and that, it's, just, it's not the same thing. Steph Curry shoots from far out. Um, he would definitely get his as far as that goes, but he wouldn't be the 50-point-a-game, you know, hitting 10 threes kind of guy. But he would definitely be um, very similar to Reggie Miller was uh, before the um, handcheck rule was enforced. James Harden, on the other hand, benefits far more from the lack of handcheck and the lane being open than any player I have ever seen subsequent to these rules changes that have come down. I, I've, and it's mostly because Harden knows, and this is what the NBA, there's an unintended consequence of what the NBA put in motion, was that once you eliminated the hand check, the onus was on the defender to prove he didn't foul. And contact became so offensively oriented, particularly on the perimeter, that things kind of move that direction, and no player takes advantage of that more than James Harden. Also, in 1994, I think it was 94 or 96, but I think it was 94, the NBA changed uh, the three-point shot, if you got fouled on the three-point shot, from two free throws to three. That was 1994 that that changed. That was another one of the rules that the NBA put in to try to encourage more jump shooting. Um, You couple that with the corner three being overvalued uh, to the point of insanity. um, You get to the point where it's like, hmm, if I'm going to be out here anyway, I might as well draw contact because this defender can't touch me. He can't check me. So the onus is on him. The benefit of the doubt is with me. So any player, i.e. a smart player like James Harden, knows that the the, the refs in a good 75-80% of the time are going to call a foul on the defensive player because you can't check the perimeter player. And that, my friends, is how the wacky world of James Harden became something else. And it was all, all primarily, primarily because the NBA wanted to eliminate Shaquille O'Neal and his dominance. That is incredible how one player, one player began the domino effect of what we see in the NBA. It's amazing. 
And James Harden, as I pointed out, is the beneficiary. Because defensive players have no benefit of the doubt anymore, particularly on the perimeter. But one caveat to this whole thing is the is is Nikola Jokic, who manages to incorporate a game that includes both three-point shooting and post-play. Um, I'm recording this after the Nuggets defeated the Dallas Mavericks um, in uh, a pretty good national tele- nationally televised game where he went toe-to-toe with Luka Doncic. And in 19... In, in 19... <laughs> Everything's 19-something with me. Um, in that game, uh, the Nuggets faced off against a coach who famously, a couple weeks ago, said that the post isn't a good shot. Post play isn't, isn't efficient. Post play is not this. Well, Nikola Jokic got many of his shots in the post. And that coming against the Dallas Mavericks, who have a hard time guarding the post, was an interesting development. Nikola Jokic combines many aspects of post-play and the modern league, which makes him a fundamentally unique player. It's not bringing the post back. You'll never see the league again like it was in the 90s. It just will never happen. But... Having a player like the caliber of Nikola Jokic come out and be able to dominate a game in a post and, and show the fact that NBA teams are so bad at playing in the post gives it one hope that the variety will come back to the NBA. You know, And James Harden, for all the crap that he gets, is only taking advantage of a fundamental, I would say, flaw in the NBA's rules. That's all he's doing. Nikola Jokic is creating something completely different, which, I don't know about you, but gives me hope that the next evolution of the NBA will be something different than we've seen the last five years. And hopefully, hopefully, it will remain this way. All right, thank you all for joining me on the latest Know Your History. I'll have one coming out again soon. Uh, really, Drew, just, uh, just look at the uh, what I would suggest is going on to um, YouTube and looking through a basketball reference and looks, really looking at the evolution of the NBA and how they changed rules over the course of four years in the early 2000s, to create the game we have today. It's fascinating. And it really will give you a different perspective on how the NBA has not necessarily evolved, but forced its way to where it is. All right, thank you all for joining me. I'll be talking to you soon. Goodbye.